Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a nice time. Me? I've been better. As you might be able to tell from my voice, I've got a pretty bad case of the crud. The crud is what you call bronchitis when you don't have health insurance. So I've got that. I've been pretty sick for the last week, and I've also had to work a few extra shifts at work. And I can't really afford to take time off just because I'm coughing up the first four-sevenths of the rainbow. I mean, you don't miss work for Roy G. You start coughing up Biv, then maybe you go to a doctor. Anyway, I bring this up not just to whine and moan, although that is part of the reason I bring it up, but also just I want to let you guys know I'm sorry. I realized that the recording with Corey, I'm pretty low energy for that, and I'm a little bit out of it on cold medicine, so if the synopsis doesn't make sense, that's why this week. For the other episodes, I really don't have that excuse. On the plus side... I do sound a little bit more like Rolf from The Muppet Show than I normally do. So, uh, I hope that something better comes along. That's fun. Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is presented by Bridger Bishop. Gnark is dead? Please, you gotta stop this. I'm way too sad to hear a synopsis. Thanks, Bridger. That bums me out, too. I've decided that seeing as there's no canonical evidence to the contrary as to what happened to Gnark, I think that he faked his death, got the DC Universe equivalent of facial reconstruction surgery, which there is just putting on a pair of glasses, and that he stars in the DCU version of Frasier. So, we don't need to be sad about Gnark anymore. He's doing fine. Tales of the Teen Titans, number 52. April, 1985. Jericho's Story. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by Rich Buckler. Inked by Mike DiCarlo. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Teen Titan Roll Call. Nightwing, Starfire, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Lilith, but mostly Jericho. Previously in Tales of the Teen Titans. Okay, so I've tried it a couple of times and I simply cannot do the March of Time announcer voice that I normally do for the previously on part. But I have noticed that speaking in a low baritone actually hurts my voice less than speaking in a regular voice. So I'm just going to do a shitty James Earl Jones impression for the previously on part. Many years ago, Jericho's mother, Adeline Wilson, was a freelance mercenary. She helped strong-arm dictator President Marlowe take control of the lazily named fictional Middle Eastern country of Karak. More recently, Adeline made the soft transition from freelance mercenary to international espionage, using her detective agency Searchers, Inc. as a front. When she learned that her former employer, President Marlowe, had secret plans to invade Karak's lazily named fictional neighbor, 
Chiran, Adeline decided to steal those plans. So she did. This decision had consequences. Marlowe hired femme fatale super-assassin Cheshire to kidnap Adeline and bring her back to Kyrak. The U.S. government also learned of Miss Wilson's espionage and decided that they would like to have a chat with her as well. Top Pentagon officials met with Nightwing and asked the former boy wonder if he could bring Joseph Wilson, a.k.a. Jericho, in and ask him some questions about his mother's activities. Dick reluctantly agreed, and since all the other Titans were busy, he sent Beast Boy to fetch Jericho. Predictably, this proved to be an unwise decision. In the months following the former Titan Terra betraying her teammates and subsequently eviling herself to death, Garfield Logan had been even more of an emotionally unstable asshole than usual. When the green teen learned that Jericho was wanted for questioning, he immediately leapt to the conclusion that the young mutton-chopped mutant was a traitor. The emerald adolescent flew both into a rage and over to the home that Jericho Wilson shared with his mother, Adeline. Unfortunately, Beast Boy was not the first uninvited guest to arrive at the Wilson residence. A few minutes previous to the verdant vigilante making his entrance, Cheshire showed up and had some fun flirtatious banter with Adeline. Then she killed Addie's adorable elderly employee, Gert. That was less fun. Adeline defended herself admirably, but was soon overmatched by the agile, amoral assassin. Cheshire knocked Addie out and was about to drag her unconscious body back to Kyrak when Joseph arrived home. The silent superhero was stunned to see his lifeless mom's body being gloated over by an assassin and assumed the worst. Cheshire took advantage of this distraction and added to it by informing the unsettled adventurer, apropos of nothing, that she used to sleep with his dad. Then she easily KO'd the confused crime fighter. That was when Beast Boy arrived. Unaware of what had just transpired, the shape-shifting shit had accosted the just-waking-up Jericho and demanded that he turn himself into the authorities immediately. A groggy Jericho attempted to explain himself, but due to Gar's proud ignorance of ASL, the conversation went poorly. Frustrated, Jericho attempted to leave, and an emotionally volatile Beast Boy attacked him. During the ensuing scuffle, Jericho used his powers to take over Gar's body and make him fly himself headfirst into a wall, concussing the animal avatar-assuming asshole. Hooray! Jericho fled to the nearby apartment of his friend Amber, a beautiful young woman with a rad afro. When he awoke, Gar returned to the Titan Tower to share with his teammates that he was fully convinced that Jericho was a traitor. Also, occasionally psychic former Teen Titan Lilith was hanging out with the gang while newlywed Wonder Girl was on her honeymoon, Raven was hanging out in some secret dimension yelling about her feelings, and some scientists from Star Labs found an alien and their spaceship frozen in the ice in a cave in Alaska. Oh, and Cheshire has a secret love child, and the father is a teen titan. Gadzooks! Will Beast Boy get his shit together and stop being such an asshole? How will Jericho track down his missing mother? And will this issue's portrayal of the Middle East be less racist than the Defenders issue that had one of the heroes leaving the team to join the Crusades? This is CNN. 
I mean, stay tuned to find out. Okay, so no. In fact, he only stops being a petulant asshole long enough to be a creepy asshole and make some sexually suggestive remarks about an emotionally vulnerable teammate. He goes to a random bar in Kyrak and beats people up until they take him to see the president. And I'd say it's at best a tie. In the far-off and lazily named fictional country of Kyrak, President Marlowe is torturing Adeline Wilson and entreating her to use her photographic memory to recreate the secret plans for the invasion of nearby Kyran that I guess the Kyraki forces must have just plumb forgot. Adeline refuses to comply. Marlowe isn't too stoked about that, and he's about to commence to torturing when he is interrupted by an assistant who informs him that an arms dealer named Krygor is there to see him. Flustered, Marlowe delegates the Adeline torture to one of his underlings and bustles out of the room nervously. It turns out that a couple of days ago, Marlowe had purchased a big old weapon shipment from Krygor. The guns had been delivered to a warehouse in New York as per Marlowe's instructions. The sanguinary strongman had intended to ship them back to Kyrak and use them to invade Kyran or Kijipt or some other Middle Eastern country that has a velar consonant duct taped to its front end to make it sound fictional. But wouldn't you know it, those pesky old teen titans went ahead and raided the warehouse and seized the weapons before Marlowe got the chance to mail them to himself. Bummer. Marlowe tries to ask Krygor if he can get some more guns. Krygor, a large dapper bald man with a handlebar mustache, is like, Sure thing, just so long as you pay for them. The thing is, Marlowe doesn't want to pay for them. He asks if he can please have them for free, seeing as he lost the last guns that Krygor sold him. That goes over just about as well as you might expect. Turns out, international arms dealers aren't particularly well known for their philanthropy. I'm surprised Marlowe didn't try telling him it was his birthday. Krygor's like, Okay, I'm afraid I can't accept your offer of nothing in exchange for the weapon shipment, but how about I make you a counteroffer? What if instead of nothing, you give me your priceless art collection that you have stolen from various countries you've invaded? Marlowe reluctantly accepts, but thinks to himself that later on, he'll probably just kill Krygor and take the art back anyways. Man, this guy really puts the dick back in Dictator. Just once, I'd like someone to put the tater back in dictator. It'd kind of take the sting out of being a member of the subjugated masses if every once in a while you got free-baked potato bar with all the fixins. Back in Amber's apartment in New York, she and Jericho catch each other up on recent events. When Amber hears that Adeline is in trouble, she leaps into action. Apparently, a few years ago, Amber was working as a prostitute when Adeline found her and recruited her to be an international super spy. Amber is pretty grateful to her mentor for the opportunity she gave her and is eager to repay the favor by rescuing Adeline. She pokes around on her computer and finds out that Cheshire has been working for President Marlowe lately, so if that's who nabbed Joey's mom, then she's probably in Karak. Fair enough. Man, it's a good thing spies and super assassins are so fond of prototype chat rooms. Jericho and Amber hop on a jet and head for the Middle East. Meanwhile, at the Titan Tower, Gar fills the other Titans in on his version of what transpired at the Wilson estate. When he is finished, Lilith reports that she has just learned that Joe and an unknown female companion were spotted getting on a jet. Beast Boy responds to this news by saying, See, I knew he was a traitor. He tried to murder me, and now he's skipping town. I hate him. Let's go get him. 
The rest of the Titans take a vote and unanimously decide that Jericho seems like a pretty chill dude and they should just let him do his thing, and also that Gar needs to chill the fuck out. Beast Boy sulks angrily, but frankly, he was probably going to do that anyway. During the short argument, Cyborg received a phone call from Star Labs saying that they would like him to drop off some of his deceased mother's research on cryogenics. Apparently Vic just carries those around with him because he decides to head to the labs directly from the meeting. The rest of the gang decides to tag along with him because there's a pretty good restaurant near Star Labs and being dismissive of Beast Boy is hungry work. Before they leave, Lilith says that she just got one of her psychic flashes and is sure that something will happen at Star Labs that will change her life forever. Which is pretty darn dramatic, but when you think about it, everything that happens in your life changes it forever because that's just kind of how time and causality work. Whoa. Great. Now I gotta write the rest of the synopsis with a blown mind. When Amber and Jericho arrive in Kyrak, they behave like typical American tourists. They go to the first bar they find, start insulting the country, and demand to be taken to see the president. See, this is why so many people I know sew those little Canadian flags onto their backpacks when they go abroad. The Kairaki bartenders and patrons react negatively to our protagonist's demands and ask them to leave, threatening their well-being if they do not. So, Amber and Jericho use some fancy kung fu moves to beat up the offensive Arab stereotypes that were hanging out in the bar. The bar, which incidentally appears to be named Cafe Islam, which seems like kind of a weird name for a place that serves bourbon. But hey, what do I know? Anyway, Jericho and Amber are beating up the bar staff who still stubbornly refuse to take them to the country's president when Cheshire shows up and starts beating them up. She quickly knocks out Jericho and then orders that he and Amber be bound and taken to President Marlowe's palace. So, I guess their plan worked? Hooray? Back in New York, the scientists at Star Labs thank Cyborg for bringing over his mom's research notes and ask the Titans if they feel like hanging out and poking around all of their top-secret science projects. One of the scientists asked Starfire if they could maybe research her alien physiology sometime, but... Seeing as how she had previously been kidnapped and tortured by alien scientists, she declines. At this point, Gar stops sulking long enough to be a lecherous creep for a minute. Hey, fuck you, Beast Boy. Unfortunately, before anyone gets the chance to pummel the chimeric creepazoid, some science alarms start going off. Turns out the temperature controls that had been regulating the freezer, where they had been keeping that alien dude they found frozen in Alaska, have just started going all screwy, and now the lab might explode or something. Yeah, that seems like the sort of thing that probably happens when a refrigerator breaks. The scientists evacuate the lab, but Cyborg volunteers to stay behind and fiddle with knobs to try to keep everything from blowing up. Also, it would suck for the scientists to have to throw out all their TV dinners, because if those things thaw and then refreeze, they're, they're really just no good. Vic does his best and says some science words as he pushes some buttons, but Lilith gets a premonition that if he doesn't get out of the room, he's going to die. So she rushes in and grabs him. The two teenage teammates leap for the exit just as the lab explodes in a giant fireball. Huh. I wonder if maybe they had their super freezer plugged into the same outlet as their super microwave or super hairdryer? Yeah, that's probably it. The blast blew Cyborg out of the room and to relative safety. Lilith seemed to catch the full brunt of the explosion, but strangely appears to be unharmed, although she is held to the wall by some unknown force. 
She watches as the alien emerges from the cryogenic chamber. He looks like a handsome young man, but with giant feathery wings. The winged dude looks at Lilith and thinks to himself, Weird. I think I have amnesia, and also, I'm in love with that red-headed stranger. And I don't mean Willie Nelson, whoever that is. I don't know because I'm an alien, and also, I have amnesia. I'm paraphrasing slightly. Back in the fictional, offensively stereotypical Middle East, President Marlowe goes in to visit Adeline and see how the torture's been going. Turns out, not great for either party. Addie still hasn't given Marlowe's henchfolk the info he wants, which sucks for him, and she's still being tortured, which definitely sucks for her. Then, Marlowe plays his trump card. He has his guards bring in a newly captured Jericho. He tells her that if she doesn't talk, the focus of the torture will switch from her to her son. Then he throws in as an aside, Oh, and by the way, the terrorist who slit his throat when he was a little boy was working for me. Because I'm super evil and it's important that you hate me. Yeah, Marlo. Got it. I think all the torture and threats of future torture were already doing the trick on that front, but way to be thorough. Crestfallen, Adeline Wilson finally agrees to talk. A half hour later, when she has divulged all the information her tormentor had sought, Addie is shoved in a cell with her son and Amber. As President Marlowe hurries off to complete his weapons trade with Krygor, he instructs the guards that if any of the prisoners attempt to escape, they are to be killed immediately. Once reunited, the three captives compare notes and quickly concoct a scheme. Amber and Adeline start yelling for the guards that Joseph has disappeared and they are freaked out. Naturally, the guards rush in to investigate, because when has something like that ever been used as a ruse of some sort? At first, things seem to be on the up and up. Joseph does indeed appear to be missing. But when one of the guards comes closer to Adeline to question her about her missing son, Jericho leaps out of his mom and punches him in the face. Yeah. That is just a weird sentence no matter how you phrase it. I mean... Joey had been using his mutant powers to astrally hide inside his mom's body like a creepy Oedipal Trojan horse. Man, those are two Greek myths that did not need to be conflated. The result of Jericho's maternal turducken gambit, other than me being deeply uncomfortable, is that the trio of Marlowe's captives are now free. Hooray? A few moments later, President Marlowe is finalizing his arms deal with Krygor and packing up his prized art collection for the mustachioed Merchant of Death when Amber bursts into the room with a machine gun and points it at the amoral artwork aficionados. She appears to have the upper hand when Cheshire bursts out of nowhere and kicks the gun out of her hand. Uh-oh. The two ladies kung fu each other for a little while, and Amber seems to be gaining the upper hand when Cheshire seizes the dropped machine gun and starts firing. She misses her target, but Amber seems uncharacteristically concerned when some stray bullets damage some of the paintings. Her outburst of, Art is forever! You can't let it die! distracts the stylish super assassin momentarily, and our heroes use the opportunity to spring the same trap they used on the guards. Jericho leaps out of Amber's body and slugs Cheshire in the face. It's still weird, but so much less creepy than when he was hiding inside his mom. Our once again discreet duo of do-gooders quickly overpower their opponents. Krygor begs Cheshire to intercede on their behalf, but the villainous vixen is like, nah, you guys are losing, so I'm gonna go home. 
Adeline comes in and congratulates her son and former protege on a job well done. But the wily President Marlowe still has one trick up his sleeve. Does he have a family member hiding inside his body somewhere? Thankfully, no. But he does have a grenade. Marlowe tells the heroes that if they do not let him go, he will explode them all to death. Amber drops her gun, but Adeline shrieks at her son to shoot the torturous tyrant anyway. She's still pretty pissed off about all the torture. Seeing Adeline's expression, Marlowe freaks out, tosses the grenade, and runs away. Addie yells for Jericho to chase the departing dictator down and execute him, but instead, much to his mother's chagrin, the art-loving adventurer dives after the grenade and throws it out a window, saving the paintings from being destroyed in a fiery blast. Addie is pretty pissed off, but Amber is like, Valuing beauty over revenge? That's our Jericho! Adeline is still pretty upset by the decision. I get it. I mean, you carry the kid around inside you for nine months, and then some other times too, I guess, and this is the thanks you get? I wonder if after this, President Marlowe tries to soften his image to the international press by changing his name to President Marlowe Thomas. Seems like that might be a good PR move. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm feeling a little weird because I ate a lot of that spray cheese that you have in your kitchen. But otherwise, doing okay. And just for us listeners, I don't generally have spray cheese in oh, my kitchen. Oh, don't let him. He's yanking your This tape. was a special event for my birthday because I am a classy man. And for my birthday, I wanted some spray cheese. Pretty good. Yeah, but you're feeling a little off from that? I ate kind of a lot of it. I was hungry when I got here. <laughs> yeah, I noticed you're putting it on potato chips. Breakfast of champions. Indeed. Yeah, I'm feeling a little weird. It's, it's nice to have this space back, but uh, Gary and Ed trashed our studio. Yeah, I guess it was on account of they didn't have their usual eight ball, so... Yeah, they get a little antsy in their pantsy when they uh, yep. they don't get that uh, booga sugar. Yep. But uh, it's nice of them to fill in for us for the week. I've certainly learned a lot about the geriatric gangrene jujitsu gerbils from them. More than you needed to know. Or wanted to, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of comics, we read a comic of our own this week. Tales of the Teen Titans number 52. What'd you think of that comic? I like to think 11-year-old Cory would have appreciated this a lot more than the gangrene jujitsu gerbils. I think so. I, I certainly appreciated it more as a man of whatever my age is. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was pretty good, too. I know, like, I shouldn't be surprised when the portrayal of Arabs in the 1980s comic yeah. rankles me. Yeah. But this one seemed pretty bad. It was very bad. Yeah, it definitely stuck out to me as well in a number of regards. Hearing a character just referred to as the Arab was not great. And yeah, it's the the entire country is portrayed in a negative light. The entire region is portrayed in a very negative light. Not surprising, but yeah, very unfortunate. I also realize there's certain shortcuts you need to take in a comic book to move the story along. I did find it pretty silly that they walk into a bar and... <laughs> Amber's like, hey, I'd like a whiskey. And uh, where's your president? You know, Marlo. Yeah, no, there were a couple of scenes in the book that really reminded me of my bartending days in, in a couple of ways. Wait, people came in and asked for the president? Oh, God, all the time. Oh, man. Maybe I'm speaking up. Yeah, just now. start pushing people around and are like, hey, 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 I want two beers, one for me and another one for me. And also, 
Where's the president? Get him in here! All the time, huh? All the time. Really, really frustrating. No, that scene totally reminded me of, like, there are a bunch of Daredevil comics, especially I'm thinking of the Frank Miller run, where he goes through this thing where he'll just show up in a dive bar and start beating people up randomly when he's looking for information. Be like, who's gonna talk about such and such? I know there's criminals here. Mm -hmm. And it was that approach, but with a head of state. And yeah, that was really, really funny to me. Yep. The other thing that uh, reminded me of my bartending days was, uh, you know Marlo's an asshole because of Krieger's approach to him? I mean, Krieger seems like an asshole, too. Mm -hmm. But when Marlo's like, hey, so uh, something happened to that gun shipment. Can I just get another gun shipment? And Krieger's like, oh, man, I would love to help you out with that. But, uh, you know... You, uh, you did take consignment of the guns before they got stolen. Marlowe's approach to that is very much that of somebody who has spilled their drink and is asking the bartender for a free drink. Mm. And you can tell Marlowe's an asshole because Krieger isn't giving him one. Mm -hmm. That was always my thing. Like, if I'm bartending and somebody spills their drink, most situations, I'm just going to be like, yeah, okay, sure. I don't give a fuck. Have a free drink. This shit happens. But, technically, that is me doing the person a favor because I didn't spill their drink. They spilled their drink. We can't be recouped for it. Like, we paid for that whiskey as an establishment, and you took possession of it, and then you fucked up. Mm -hmm. So if people would come to me with a thing of like, oh, I'm really sorry I spilled my beer, I would usually just be like, oh, let me get you another one. But if they came up and were just like, hey, I spilled my beer, so I need a free one, I'd be like, oh, fuck you. Mm. I think one of my favorite instances of that happened kind of recently uh, at the theater. I do a little bit less in the way of bartending than I used to. I'm the, the GM of an independent theater that does serve beer. So serving beers is probably two of my five shifts a week. That's what I'm doing. The rest is like managerial stuff. But on one of the days when I was working, a uh, bartending shift, guy came up and was real shitty about like, hey, I spilled my beer, so now I need a free one. And it started off being, being kind of a misunderstanding. I hadn't realized he spilled his. I thought he was just ordering another beer. And then he was so shitty about me asking him for money for it that I definitely, like, doubled down. Was like, no, man, you spilled your beer so you don't get a free one. And he came back and was really, really upset at me and asked me my name. And I told him my name's Hub. Mm -hmm. And... He decided to do what I love it when people do, which is like, really? That's mm. really your name? That's your real name? That's what it says on your birth certificate? I'm like, well, it's what people call me. And he's like, well, what's your real name? And I was like, why? Do you need it for a spell? <laughs> and he didn't care for that. And he uh, wanted to know the, uh, the GM's name and email address so that he could write to them. I was like, well, you're not going to like this. It's a... Uh, hub at the name of the theater.com <laughs> and so yeah that was a fun interaction oh good but like i'm saying it was always it was always my approach that if somebody asks for something for free it really makes me not want to give it to them sure if they ask for something and they seem like a reasonable person and i'm in a position where i can give it to them for free i'm usually happy to mm -hmm. but if uh yeah if there's an entitlement behind it or you're just like i need this for free what are you going to do about it? Generally, what I'm going to do about it is be kind of a dick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 
In this case, it worked out pretty good for Krieger. You got some some artworks uh-huh. in exchange for uh, some guns. Yeah. Just uh, you know, our art for guns policy. Mm-hmm. I think they've tried that in the inner cities alongside the Toys for Tots thing. Usually doesn't work out quite as well. Yeah, yeah. Art for guns. Yeah. Just like, all right, I can give you a Picasso pin print from his blue period for this uh, gun of some sort. I don't, I don't know gun words. Um, a, li- a lithograph? Why, yeah, that's not a gun word. No, that's not art word. Yeah, I know some of those. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> a Glock. Sure, that's a gun. Yeah. I've seen about those on the on the TV screen. Oh, all the time. I think they used them in New Jack City, probably. maybe. Yeah. That's probably a... the most recent crime movie. It's pretty popular. Let's talk about President Marlowe's art collection a little bit. So, he apparently amassed a million do- millions of dollars in art collections by invading nearby countries and taking over their museums. Mm-hmm. It appears to be a very poorly curated art collection. He's just keeping it like all on a couple of big walls and he's got like landscapes next to abstract pieces, next to portraits. It seems like a really odd mishmash of art. I had a difficult time getting a read on what if it was supposed to be referencing any famous works or anything, it just seemed like kind of like background doodads. I think it was just background doodads, and it really is kind of a difficult position that Rich Buckler was put in when he was drawing that, or any artist would be, if you're like, all right, um, so in the background of this, I just need 15 pieces of brilliant masterpieces of art. It's like, um, okay... <laughs> Yeah, how does that, I don't even know how that works if there's, you know, copyrights or something, because obviously those are all, like, reproduced, you know? There's the bazillion Starry Nights and the Kisses and all these other famous things gracing dormitories mm-hmm. across the world. Yeah. So if you draw a likeness of that, can you get in trouble? Probably. I don't know. It's got to be in the public domain, doesn't it? Oh, there's probably some rule about that after a while it goes public. I would think so. Fair use or something. Yeah, I don't know how that works with art copyright law. I mean, yeah, it would be much easier if he was could just, like, do, yeah. like, his own little, like, doodles that are shorthands for, like, yeah, Starry Night or some fucking sunflowers or some bullshit. Yeah. But it does seem like just an odd position to just be like, all right, so just 15 works of fictional art that are recognizable and are going to be referred to as being beautiful and genius and worth more than uh, than taking revenge for your mother's torture. But they're also in the background and super, super tiny. So yeah. have fun. Yeah, enjoy. It kind of reminds me of like when a writer will have a character in their story write a poem that everyone else acknowledges is a brilliant poem within the world of the story. And it's just like, no, I know you wrote that. So having everybody talk about how genius it is I know this has come up before, but you're, you're, you're uh, Cameron Crowe in it. Yeah, or, like, song lyrics. This comes up in fantasy novels all the time, like Tolkien or uh, whoever wrote the uh, the Dragonlance books. Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Yeah. Um, anyway, I would always, like, be super into the story, and then I'd get to the part where the bard, like, busts out, and I'd just be like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. And I always wondered, like, am I just missing it? Because... A lot of times, you know, when you read the lyrics to a song, you're oh, just like, most oh, most lyrics bullshit. are really dumb. Yeah. I've realized that I have been, over the years, a little bit unfair to Jim Morrison <laughs> in how dumb I think his lyrics are. Don't get me wrong. I think his lyrics are very, very dumb. 
But taken out of the context of songs, most lyrics are really, really dumb. I don't know. The Morrison thing, though, also, like, he released some books of poetry, which yeah. I may or may not have had a look at. So that's where past. I don't think I was being unfair to Jim Morrison, is it's one thing to be dumb. It's another thing to be pretentious about being dumb. The thing is, and- with, the, with, good, with a good song, it doesn't really matter a whole lot it still sounds pretty fucking cool curtis mayfield has written some of my favorite songs and he has some great lyrics but he also has objectively what are some of the dumbest lyrics ever and i say this i love curtis mayfield but when you have lyrics like i've been all over the world and i've found that the oppressed have it the worst on every continent (laughs) oh curtis like yeah yeah they do (laughs) all right yeah most lyrics are just really dumb and bad so I, i don't think you can necessarily blame Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Man, I was trying to read some Dragonlance books recently. They're hard to find, and it's hard to figure out what order they're in because there are like 19 different series within them, you know? The first one is red. The cover uh, is reddish. That's not as helpful as you would think, Corey. I think the second one is the Time of the Twins. That raced one? Is he one of them? Yeah, the Magic Man. All right. Because I was confused, I read like, I think the first one that I read was like, Dragonlance Legends, which is, like, set in a totally different time period. And then the second one that I picked up was, I think, the second book of the original series, which had, you know, Raceland Mm -hmm. uh, being middle evil or whatever, Mm -hmm. not all the way evil. Mm -hmm. And then the next one was, like, about a furfoot or something. And it was, like, I just kept accidentally... Burfoot. Yeah, I just kept accidentally picking up, like, what I thought was the next chronological one, and it was a totally different series. Dude, I'm sure there's a wiki for this. If only there were some way to find out what order to read the Dragonlance books. I don't think anybody knows what order to read the Dragonlance books, and I'm sure those books have been completely forgotten by everybody and are not meticulously cataloged anywhere. Probably not. I had a book when I was a kid that was all Dragonlance fan stuff, and... Oh, my. The, uh... The there was a staff that the Kender who was like a little elf dude the fur who you called furfoot. I'm sorry, was, is that a slur? Did I use a slur against? No, him? no, no. Okay. No, Burfoot. That's his last name. It sounds oh, okay. like furfoot. But so it's like a slingshot, but it's like a staff with a slingshot on the top. And I wanted to make one so bad, but I was unable to pull it off. I'm sorry. It's okay. What you did make we... a lot of different uh, makeshift weapons, though. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember you You would uh, sharpen up those bicycle gears. Oh, yeah. And the ninja stars. Yep. Very effective. Yep. You have to be really careful with them because you can kind of cut yourself mm-hmm. when you're trying to throw them. So it was hard to make those little artworks for the <laughs> the picture man. Yeah, that's what book. I'm saying. Yeah. 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 But uh, good job, Buckler. Good job. What did you think of Jericho's philosophy regarding art? And its import, and that he decided to save all of the art as opposed to avenging his mother's torture. I was of two minds. One, good on you for sticking to your principles and, you know, basically resolving a situation in as nonviolent a way as possible. Mm-hmm. But also, it appeared to me most of the artwork had already been machine gunned pretty bad. And yeah. he took a big risk grabbing this grenade and being just like, well, I hope I throw it out the window in time. There was that. It also made me wonder if that was his approach to all art or if there was any kind of critical evaluation that he was doing at some point on the art. It was any art. No, it's just paintings. Any art. Paintings! See, here's the thing. Save the paintings. 
What does he consider art, though? Is it the fact that it's framed that can that makes it art? Corey, I guess what I'm saying is, and I think what we could probably dedicate the rest of the show to is, what is art? Oh, no. <laughs> Corey, what is art? So Is everything art? I also think the reason that he didn't kill Marlo <laughs> is because his mom was, like, standing next to him yelling in his ear, like, shoot that guy, shoot that guy. Yeah, that and that was, like, really the first time that we've seen kind of the cracks in Adeline since her first appearance that seemed to... In her very first appearances, there was this aura of mistrust about her that I think we both picked up on, that we were, like, waiting to see what sinister part of her scheme she was doing. It was like, as she watched the Titans fly away, she was thinking to herself, like, excellent, my plans are coming to fruition or something. Mm -hmm. Since that initial portrayal, it seems like they switched tacks and were like, no, she's actually totally great and one of the good guys 100%. And that has been her approach until this issue, and really just in those last couple of panels of this issue, where I think it's reasonable for her to want revenge, but the vitriol she is heaping upon her son for not taking revenge and for saving the artwork seemed to make her seem a much less sympathetic character than we have been seeing her portrayed as. Yeah, I agree. So I think, I you know, also good on him. It's natural, I think, whenever any parental figure is yelling at you to do something, to be like, don't tell me what to do. Yeah, that's especially he is a teen. Yeah. Not often portrayed as such, but he is a teen. It makes me wonder, though, just like his reverence for all art and for the very concept of art and that all of it has to be preserved at any cost if the maybe that was some of why addy was so pissed off if she was just sick of jericho's shit in that regard where she's like look i left that doodle up on the fridge for like three months eventually i have to get rid of it like we have limited space we live in new york mm -hmm. i can't keep every piece of paper that you've scribbled on since you were a kid Mm -hmm. I'm over this shit. And is that the approach that he takes? Like, it, does that count as artwork? Well, to get back to your question... What is art? I think it's in the eye of the beholder. And for Jericho, it's whatever has a frame around it. And that is what makes it, is, is that it is framed. And it's framing and display is what makes it art as opposed to anything else. Being well, art. no, I mean, like, I think if you were to just frame, like, a steak... He probably wouldn't think, think that was art. I think he'd be I, I think I think some people would. <laughs> In fact, that's probably been done. But I think what if it's a painting or a drawing or something like that, then yeah, he's like, all right, there you go. It's got to be saved. Okay, I think that's fair. And I think that will probably put an end to our new, wildly popular segment. What is art? It is art anyway. Yeah. Yeah, oh, uh, it's like, you know, pictures and shit. Oh, okay. Yeah. I wonder to what extent Jericho is valuing this art because it is valued and to what extent he is valuing it because it is the concept of art. And that makes it a little bit less sympathetic an argument in my mind if it is, this is valuable art, therefore it should be protected. Like like the, the same way you see like Lichtenstein paintings are valued so much more higher than the actual comic book art that they ripped off, you know? I don't know what that means, but that sounds intriguing. Wait, the whole country? Yup. <laughs> the country of Liechtenstein is always ripping off comic books. Dang. I'm sick of them. Dang. Yeah, tiny little country, too. That's some gumption. 
Yeah, well, you know, you gotta make your name somehow. Mm. Anyway, I just wonder if maybe the reason that Addie is partly upset is because she views it as he is valuing property damage over revenge. His, over revenge. Yeah, it's it's actually, I think, a little more nuanced yeah. than we often get. Yeah. And the stuff I I am up to like I said I wasn't I was only kind of half joking when I said I'm of two minds yeah. on the matter. Like on one hand good on him, but I would to- like if I was in her shoes, yeah, I'd be like fuck that guy, get that guy. Shoot, he, he shoot that dude. He tortured me and I hate that. And he was going to do bad things to you. And and this is totally I feel like unnecessary that they made him the guy who was responsible for having Jericho's throat slit. That seems like that was kind of piling on President Marlowe and didn't necessarily need to be part of the story. Speaking of art being destroyed, this issue has a very iconic, interesting cover. It is Cheshire in an alleyway, slashing through posters of the Teen Titans' faces, which are pasted up on the wood paneling of this alley. We know it's an alley because there's trash cans and rats there, the the wood paneling is kind of odd, as is the dirt floor. Maybe it's like a fence. Probably it's a fence. But the cover is very, very reminiscent of another comic book cover, the Days of Future Past X-Men cover, where it's Wolverine protecting Kitty Pride in front of all of the X-Men wanted posters that say that they're dead, mm. like deceased and stuff like that. That cover made more sense in context. She's doing like a similar pose, and she's slashing the wall with her claws and slashing through a picture specifically of Jericho and Beast Boy. It's a really, really cool-looking cover. It does not make sense in the same way that the Days of Future Past one does that I think it is referencing. Mm -hmm. Because why are there pictures of the Teen Titans? These are like Tiger Beat-style like pinup pictures of their faces that are pasted up in this alleyway. Like... There's, like, a teenager living in the alleyway. Oh, man. You, you just... You're not understanding the art, man. It doesn't need oh. to be literal. Well, Corey, it doesn't have a frame around it. That's not art. Well, whatever, Jericho. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, you're right. I'm being a real Jericho, though. The covers never really have much to do with what actually happens in the comic. That is fair. And it is a cool-looking cover. It is weird that there is the pinup of Lilith on there, too, though. Mm-hmm. Well, it's nice that they included her, because she is a Teen Titan in this issue. But I don't think she's received the same publicity. She's only been with the team for, like, a couple of days at this point. No, since it's her a, initial it's a metaphor that Cheshire is trying to destroy the team. Okay, why is there that little rat there? What, is that, what does that mean in the metaphor? Oh, that's just a rat. All right. Why is there a spotlight on her? Huh? Well, there's a spotlight over Cheshire in the same way that there is the spotlight on... Uh, Wolverine because the cops are looking for him. Are the oh. cops looking for her for destroying the Titans pictures? No, just because it looks cool. It does look cool. Huh? Who says I don't know art? I'm sorry for saying that you don't know art. You're welcome. I know we talked about this briefly last week. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast itself. You made the joke last issue that the country that Marlowe was president of was probably called Kyrak. Right. Because... The country he was invading was called Kyran. Mm-hmm. This is the issue that we learned that you were actually right about that, and that country is called Kyrak. <sighs> it is so fucking stupid. <laughs> they didn't have a glad bag in it, though, right? No, no, they didn't go to glad bag Kyrak. Okay. 
What did you think of Cheshire in this issue? As usual, pretty good bad guy. Yeah. I didn't get why she was suddenly so freaked out by having to fight Jericho at the end. It felt rushed and it didn't make sense for her character. So Jericho's in Amber's body, kicks Cheshire in the face. That understandably is like, whoa, what's going on? I got kicked in the face. That sucks. Then he jumps out of Amber's body. At which point she's like, whoa, back boy. That was you? What's going on? I'm so confused. And that's a radical... It's a radical departure from her attitude towards Jericho, uh, who previously she had just been fucking handling. Just like kicking him in the face, being like, I fucked your dad. I know. Pow. (laughs) so harsh. (laughs) Yeah. That didn't make a ton of sense for me from her. The other thing that didn't make a ton of sense for me from her is after that, when things had... Barely and just recently switched to the good guys having the upper hand. And Krieger's like, quick, get those guys. And she's like, nah, I can tell we're losing, so I'm out. As an assassin, that has to be terrible for your reputation if you do that. We've talked about the fact that so far in her appearances, she is definitely one up on Deathstroke. In terms of, we've seen her actually kill people Mm -hmm. and be willing to kill people. And that was really cool, and I respected that about the character. This doesn't make sense for her. If you are known that, like, you won't honor your contract and you'll only be on the side as soon as it's winning, that has to be terrible for your reputation as an assassin, which is something that she had been previously very concerned with. Mm -hmm. It's one of a few ways in which this whole storyline seems like it should have been a three or four issue arc, and it gets really condensed into this issue and the last one. Because mm-hmm. as near as I can tell, we we are now wound up with the Jericho and Kyran and Kyrak and Adeline story arc. And I'm of two minds on that. Because on the one hand, it feels rushed and I feel a little bit cheated. On the other hand, I am glad we are out of the fictional Middle East because the, uh, yeah, the portrayal of Middle Eastern people is real, real bad in this. Mm-hmm. Right down to... You mentioned this. I wasn't sure if this would be the case in even the reprints of it because sometimes they tweak the coloring in that. Spend some time on getting a skin tone right. Because don't they, they draw them literally as being gray. Dude is the same. All the dudes are the same color as the trash can on the cover. Yeah. Yeah, just like literally gray. And it has the same effect that the writing does, which is to dehumanize these people. And I get that they're being portrayed as bad guys, and it's unfortunate that an entire race is being depicted as bad guys, but to go that that further step of just, like, dehumanizing them in every aspect, including the, the coloring, is, uh, shitty. Yep, I did not care for it. Yeah, so like I said, I feel like I'm ripped off a little bit in this story arc, but I'm also glad to see it tied up. It's the position that you find yourself in a lot of these comics, which is you want depictions of diversity and portrayals of other races but when you see them you're like oh shit not like this that's just kind of shitty yeah and i mean that's really something i think that you are faced with regardless of what sort of media you're consuming yeah today as well to a degree but especially like going back and looking at you know some of the the movies from the 80s and the, the 70s too yeah. Where that was just, that just was an unfortunate part of it. Yeah. Really. And I mean, you, yeah, it, it's really continuing through to this day. The fact that my family is Syrian, it, it, it is something that I have perhaps noticed more 
than I would have otherwise. I mean, my experience in this country has definitely been that of uh, a white person. I I haven't faced prejudice in, unless I have spoken up about mm-hmm. my heritage because it's not apparent. But it is something that I have been certainly aware of, especially I was in middle school during the first Gulf War and mm-hmm. had people who knew me and my family had said a lot of racial taunts and shit like that. And it, it sucked. And yeah, uh, portrayals of Middle Eastern people have been pretty rough. So... There's a funny turn of phrase that Amber has when she is holding the president of Kyrak at gunpoint. She threatens that if he moves, she'd love pumping lead into his butt. Mm-hmm. That is delightful. She's a tough cookie. It's one of those times where when you use a euphemism for the profanity that you would normally use in the situation, it makes the phrase that much worse. I have a friend who is working as a teacher's assistant at the time that the TV show Jackass was very popular. And the kids know that they couldn't use swear words, so they would refer to the show as Jack Butt. Hmm. That's way worse. When you remove the profanity from a common phrase, it, it makes the phrase less recognizable, and it forces your brain to take it literally instead of using the euphemism, and it really brings into stark relief exactly how ridiculous the thing you're saying is uh, in a way that... I really like. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she's going to put lead in his butt. <laughs> that is harsh. It is. Harsh but fair. He's a jerk. Yeah. He deserves to get rectal lead poisoning. And go crazy like those Romans used to. What? Romans used to go crazy because they had lead in their aqueducts. And also probably their dildos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming that the ancient Romans used lead dildos. It's an assumption. I think it's a safe assumption. In the rest of the story, we get a couple of things going on. Beast Boy still being an asshole. And we see again what we've seen several times whenever George Perez isn't the person drawing Beast Boy. His transformation process makes it look like he's having explosive farts. (laughs) We saw it a few times in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we've remarked on it most times. But yeah, this happened in the last issue too. There is a just like fiery explosion behind him. Whenever he changes shape in this, Perez would always just, like, draw him in the different shape, and that would be that. Other artists seem to want to add some dynamism to the transformation process, and it almost always ends up making it look like he's farting, and that it's an explosive fart. Mm -hmm. So we see it when he's a lizard, we see it when he's, like, a baboon bear man. It it continues to be a thing. Yep, that's tough to be Beast Boy. Yeah, it must be really, really difficult to both suck that much and be such an asshole and to have explosive farts all the time. I wonder if they're connected. Fire fart? I have fairly explosive farts a lot of the time and I don't think I'm as big an asshole as Beast Boy. No. Thank you. You're welcome. There's an interesting little bit where I think it's beginning to occur to Starfire that sunglasses and in general their secret identities are maybe more compromised than everybody seems to Yeah, there think. is a surprising amount of concern, or at least uh, talk time, given to their secret identities. Because, yeah, they're all concerned that Deathstroke knows who they are, which he does. Mm-hmm. He's going on trial soon. And, uh, 
Yeah, the fact that Starfire is the person who brings up, he could find out who any of us are. Anyone with eyeballs could find out who you are. That You have, with the possible exception of Jericho, who I'm honestly not sure if he's supposed to have a secret identity or not. The fact that he just chose another J name as his secret identity. It's that it's Jericho instead of Joseph, but he doesn't have a mask or anything. He just dresses like he's going to Ren Faire. Mm-hmm. He's really taking the Donna Troy approach, which is just like, just use another name. And I guess if anybody asks if that's who you are, say no. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with the exception of those two, Starfire has a very tenuous secret identity. Yeah. In that she is a superstar model who changes her appearance in no way except for to sometimes wear sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Dick raises the good point that if Deathstroke knows who he is, he probably knows who Batman is, too. And he feels bad about that. Which, good for you. You should feel bad about that. Batman, for all of his other faults, he probably trained you better than that in terms of protecting your secret identity. Mm -hmm. And he's really kind of let that fall by the wayside. Yeah, so it's nice to see that awareness creeping in. Hmm, I wonder how long it'll last. Probably not very long. He does say he doesn't care about his secret identity being exposed. Mm -hmm. It's just that it might get back to Batman, and then he'd be in trouble. Yeah. Man, I would not want Bat-Dad mad at me. No way. You ready to get into the minutia? Sure. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect? My favorite sound effect was when the grenade blew up, or the spaceship, I can't remember which one, and it made the noise shaboom. That was also my favorite sound effect because it reminded me of a certain scene in the movie Roadhouse. Hmm? Ben Gazzara is casually drunk driving while he sings the song shaboom, shaboom, sha-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, shaboom, shaboom. Hmm. And he's singing that to himself as he careens wildly across the road and he uh, ends up nudging Patrick Swayze off the road. And uh, yeah, shaboom. It's a good song. It's a great scene in Roadhouse and it's a great sound effect. I had the same one. All true. Yes. Nice. Corey, did you find a timestamp in this issue? Something that let you know that this came out in the year of 1985 or near to it? Oh boy. This was a bit of a stretch, but what I had was uh, an illustration of a computer on page five mm. where uh, they're bringing up uh, Cheshire's file. And part of it is a reel-to-reel? There's that, but more so it was the font um, on the computer, which uh, was kind of cool. It was like a black background with pink font, Ooh. but uh, the font was that like really blocky uh, monotype that I associate with the uh, 80s computer mm. stuff. Like the uh, IBM PC Junior, the Apple IIe type of thing? No, more so like in the 80s when people were trying to make fonts that looked like they were from the future. Ah. Like this is what it will look like. It was that exact font. Gotcha. Yeah, I think my pop culture go-to reference for that type of computer font is the movie Jumpin' Jack Flash. Whoopi Goldberg? Yeah, with Whoopi Goldberg, where there's a bunch of back-to-forth where she's typing Rolling Stones lyrics into a computer uh, with a secret person Mm. across the world, maybe. I don't remember. It's a good movie, I think. Could be very wrong about that, but I remember that being a good movie. I think I actually have not seen that since the 80s. I don't think I have either. We should probably watch it. Yeah, I think so. Okay. All right.
My timestamp was when Cyborg answers the phone and it is Star Labs on the line. He picks up the phone by saying, it's your quarter. Mm. And that is placing it at a fairly specific time. It was back when pay phones were still an option and they cost a quarter. So they went from a, they used to be, they were a dime and then they went to be a quarter. They were a dime and then they went to be a quarter at around this time, I think. And then by the time I was using them in like high school and when I was going on road trips, when you could find one, they would be fucking expensive. Like you would have to put a couple bucks of quarters in there. Damn. But yeah, I, I liked that scene. I think it's a weird phone call that he's having with Star Labs in that they seem to be continually interrupting him uh, as he's talking. So he answers the phone. He's like, Titan's Tower, it's your quarter. Star Labs, sure, I got the papers. What do you want them? You're kidding. The other half of that phone call is bonkers. I'm just trying to picture a way that it makes sense for him to be having that. Titan's Towers, it's your quarter. This is Hi. Star Labs. We'll, we'll try it. Uh, okay, okay. Titan's Tower, it's your quarter. Cyborg, this is Star Labs. We have some very important news. Oh, Star Labs? That, see, even that doesn't work, because they got to tell him that they've got their papers, or that they need papers from him. You want to try it again? All right, uh, let me... Titan's Tower, it's your quarter. This is Dr. Phelps from the lab. We need some papers. Uh, Star Labs? Sure, I, I've, I've got the papers. What do you want? Oh my gosh, it's super urgent. This weird guy's in the spaceship. Hurry, you must come quickly. You're kidding. Nope, be here as soon as you can. Hurry, it's urgent. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be right over. So it's probably one something like that. Yeah. I mean, stereotypically, it seems like certain elements of social etiquette would fall by the wayside when you're that immersed in study. So maybe just phone etiquette is one of those things. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if just every call from Star Labs is like that. Probably. Let's do another call from Star Labs. Okay. This time, you'll be a person getting a call from Star Labs. Okay. Ring, ring. Hello, Whitney residents. Hi, I'm Star Labs. Oh my god, Star Labs? Star Labs, and I need you to give all the papers to me right away. Okay, I got some papers. No, give me all the papers now! Oh, jeez. I'm doing science! Really? Science! Oh. Click. Bye. So rude. Yeah, that's Star Labs for you. Jeez. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic has a Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Speedy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Speedy? In this issue, my speedy was uh, Robin for actually this. We didn't talk about this part yet, but there was a scene in there where after they go to Star Labs, one of the science guys is like, oh, Starfire, an alien, we'd really like to study you. And she's like, mm, uh, I've been experimented on before and I didn't really like it. And then Robin just basically jumps in and answers for her and is like, our answer is no. Yeah, and I thought that was bullshit. It is kind of bullshit. I, I think that I'm cutting him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt that I think it comes from a good place. He knows that it is a topic she's touchy about and doesn't want to discuss with the scientists because it is a traumatic event from her past. So I think he's maybe just trying to cut that off and like run interference on it. But you're right. It does come across like he is speaking for her on a fairly important matter. Mm -hmm. I went with Beast Boy for what happens a second after that. He also wants to study Starfire. Yeah. He has uh, a teenager. Yeah. I mean, first of all, he's still being a real dipshit and not cutting Jericho any slack and being 
a real hothead about Deathstroke's trial and just generally still being an asshole. I didn't want to choose him this comic again just because I feel like kind of a broken record because it's the same issues, but they keep portraying them again, so it, it keeps being a viable choice. But what really did seal the deal is the next panel after that, the scientist says, No problem, I was simply asking. I'd probably agree where Washington is concerned. But as a scientist, I'd love to study your body. And Gar pipes in and says, As a teenager, so would I. This had been an invasive and traumatic experience for Starfire. This is not an appropriate thing for you to joke about, Beast Boy. And fuck you. Yep. Conversely, who did you have as your Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans? So we did debate this a little bit, and despite the fact that I was of two minds on the topic, I went with Jerry, uh, Jericho Joseph, for saving the art, for taking a risk, but pulling it off and throwing the grenade out the window and not blowing everybody up, for also taking the risk to jump inside his mom's body and then jump out and punch the bad guy. Yeah. And just in general, did a a pretty good job. Yeah, I had the same choice. It was a Jericho-centric issue, and we see him having a... It's not really a solo adventure. It's more of a team adventure with him and Amber for the most part, which I enjoyed that kind of, like, buddy cop aspect of it. But as a teen titan, he's the costumed adventurer. He's the only one appearing in that portion of the adventure. And he's definitely the focus of it, and he does a... Pretty good job. I'm in agreement. So I'm going to double back, and uh, there was something else about Beast Boy being a dumbass that I wanted to bring up, which is that he really shoots himself in the foot out of spite where all the other Titans are going to a new restaurant that sounds really good, and he decides to sit it out just so that he can sulk and be mopey. He's not hurting them. He's only hurting himself. Mm -hmm. Bad job, Beast Boy. You could have gone out to lunch with your friends, but instead... You decided to be an asshole. That's what he does lately. Yeah, not not just lately. He's been especially he's been mopey a... since Terra got killed. Yeah, he's always been an asshole. He's being slightly more petulant of an asshole. Mm-hmm. And also doing the thing which is most frustrating, which is showing signs that he's not going to be an, such an asshole anymore or that he's getting better in some way. Like when he planned the wedding... Or when Jillian showed up and kind of snapped him out of his funk. And then just being like, nah, just kidding. I'm still an asshole. Yep. So. <laughs> Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. All right. One instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you feel was worthy of highlight? My favorite turn of phrase in terms of insults is whenever it shows up, it pretty much gets my vote because it always cracks me up. And that's when somebody is being called a turkey. Ah. And so on page 18, we have Amber calling Marlowe a turkey. And uh, he also just looks shocked and dismayed to be receiving this insult. And uh, that tickled me. So Yeah. No, I uh, I had a trio of Amber insults. I, I had turkey, scum, and ugly, which are all things she calls President Marlowe. Mm-hmm. Or Krieger. She calls him that, too. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a real treat for me. Yep. There were no literal bozos in this issue that I could find. I any, did right? not see any. We also had, which we've seen many times before, Cyborg referring to Beast Boy as Salad Head or Sprout. Mm-hmm. Which are fine, but we've seen them all a bunch. So, yeah. Turkey, scum, ugly, 
Great job, Amber. Turkey. Sartorially speaking, what instances of fashion did you feel were worthy of note in this issue? On page two, it's subtle, but Krieger's suit is pretty dope. It's He's got a purple and black kind of striped lapel. Mm-hmm, and a matching purple tie. I had the same one. It's a black suit, but yeah, with with purple and darker purple striped lapels on it. Mm-hmm. And they match his tie, and it is subtle, and it is a good look for that dude, who otherwise looks like he should be being upset that Grover is fucking up his order as a waiter. He looks like that Muppet who's always trying to order soup from Grover. Man, I feel like that should really paint a memory picture in my head, but it's... Ah. Uh, blue Muppet, brown hair, mustache. We're always very upset about everything. No. Tries to order a hamburger, but then he gets a hamburger that's either way too small or way too big. Oh. No? No. Man. It's a shame. It is. We're going to watch some YouTube videos later. Yeah, I kind of... I, the idea of seeing Grover as a waiter also really... Oh, he messes up every up. order. When he tries so hard. It's not as easy as people would think. I love Grover. He is pretty great. When I first learned to play chess when I was a kid, I uh, refused to call the bishop anything other than Super Grover, because it looks like Super Grover. Ah, the helmet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The helmet, but also it looks like he's got the little mouth of him being uh, carved in it, mm-hmm. of him like flying forward. So, yeah. That I remember. Well, who could forget Super Grover? I don't know. Cold people. And people with dead hearts. That's who. Bad memories. Mm. What's your favorite panel? Page 18, also the same one in which Marlowe is called a turkey. Mm. Green shirt, red background. He's looking over his shoulder. It's got a nice kind of graphic quality to it. And he just looks so shocked and appalled to be being called out as a turkey. Yeah. It, uh, Do you think he's surprised because they're somewhat near the country of Turkey and he just thinks they're being bad at geography. No, I think he knows exactly, even if he doesn't know what the words are, he knows exactly what Amber is getting at. You know what? I think also in this comic book, that country is probably called Kirky. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, so, yeah, never no mind. Yep. Not even a potential nope. confusion there. Nope. That is a very nice panel. I like that a lot. He is surprised and dismayed to be being called a turkey. Mm-hmm. Presidents aren't used to that shit. Nope. Especially in dictatorial ones like that. Mm-hmm. I have a panel on page five as my favorite, which is Cyborg disapproving of an alligator. Cyborg is sitting there with his arms crossed, staring disapprovingly at Beast Boy, as he often does, who has turned himself into a beautifully rendered alligator. Possibly crocodile. Difficult to tell which way the teeth are going in that. Maybe a caiman. Could be a caiman. I think it's I think it's an alligator. Me too. Then it's agreed. Alligators. Well, Corey, I have but one further question I must put to you. And that question is Wapoot. What is Aqualad probably up to? Wapoot! Month of our Lord April? And the year of our Lord, 1985. Well, among Aqualad's many terrestrial interests, mm. this being the mid-80s, him still being a teen, um, skateboarding was one of his big interests. Was it? Yeah. 
And so he had some time to kill. He had some spare change in his pocket. He decided to go down to the skate shop and uh, get himself some snacks and, and beverages and pick up the latest issue of his favorite uh, skateboarding magazine, Thrasher Magazine. It's a good magazine. Um, this one, the April 1985 issue, was uh, the one where a guy who was a pro skater back in the day, Christian Hosoy. Oh, I know Christian Hosoy. Yeah, and this this issue kind of made a little bit of a splash when it came out because one of Christian Hosoy's nicknames was Christ. Uh-huh. Right? Which, yeah. Which, you know... I rubbed some people. Yeah, the wrong I rubbed way. some people the wrong way, which the skateboarding community in general gets a kick out of. Sure, did back in the day. I don't uh-huh. know. I'm kind of disconnected these days. Uh, so he was he was titillated to pick that oh, up. This day, the uh, skateboarding community very uh, very reverent and very um, it's respectful. Okay. of uh, society and its mores. So skate and construct mm-hmm. these days. More yes. so skate and maintain. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um. Uh, politely pointing out that skateboarding is not a crime but if it were we would stop doing it Mm -hmm. okay yeah you know times change i don't know uh anyway so he he was pretty stoked he was stoked to pick up that um that issue also contained uh an article called stoked on snowboarding oh my which uh boy if you guys want some top-notch journalism (laughs) you really ought to check that article out it's pretty well written so as he's he's learning about snowboarding, learning uh-huh. about Christian Hosoi, he pops open what he thinks is a Coke. What is a Coke, right? It is a Coke, but it turns out that Coke had gone, he just, for whatever reason, somehow missed what is maybe like the, the biggest, craziest marketing decision of a giant company ever, mm-hmm. which is to take something that billions of people, millions of people love and change it. And it was a new Coke. What? Yeah, so... The new Coke as promoted by Max Hedrum and Bill Cosby? And to some degree on this show, Dude. Catch the Wave of the Future was one of their uh, their uh, headlines for, was it? for new Coke, yeah. Oh, boy. Boy, uh, Max Hedrum and Bill Cosby, two th- spokespeople that have aged very well. Oh, my. So anyway, yeah, he spits it out. He's disgusted and he proceeds to place a call. To, uh, he just looks up the number for, you know, Coke headquarters and wants to call and complain. It's like, hey, bring the old Coke back. And, uh, it turns out he was not alone. On average, Coca-Cola being such a huge product and such a big brand, uh, duh, did at that point in the, in the 80s get around 400 calls a day on average. Whoa. And, um, as soon as this new Coke came out, that number went up to 1,500 calls. How many of those were Aqualad? Several. <laughs> he was pretty grossed out and pissed off about the, the change of his mm-hmm. beloved soft drink. His favorite free soda. So, there was all kinds of hubbub and fear. There was protests. There were protest groups organized. And 31,600 telephone calls later. And um, about 79 days later. Actually, on my birthday. July oh. 11, 1985. Coke, so, you know, it's like, okay, okay, guys, sorry, we screwed up, we'll bring it back, it's Coke Classic, and uh, we'll call the other one, you know, New, New Coke. Coke. Yeah. And uh, so, Aqualad felt like he really was fighting the good fight and uh, helped bring back uh, one of his, Speaking his favorite Speaking truth to beverages. That's, uh, that's the Aqualad way. Mm-hmm. Nice work. Catch the wave of the future. I'm so upset that that is uh, associated with new Coke. I think it just said catch the wave. <laughs> okay, that's better. But it was the future part is totally implied. I don't think it was. Yeah, because they no. split the ad campaigns after they, they 
they brought back Coke Classic, and they and the the new Coke was appealing to to a younger generation, the so. younger hipper generation. Yeah, so yeah. catch the wave, totally the wave of the future. No, no, they wanted you to catch the wave of the present. I don't know. If I think that's that accurate. was what it was. I think it was the Coca Cola Classic would be the um, the undertow of the past, uh, as opposed to the uh, new Coke being the the wave of the present. We're the wave of the future, Corey. And people need to hang 10 on it with us. Okay. Cowabunga. Totally different. Okay. Separate property. Copyrightable. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not saying anything about that. I'm just saying the future is implied. The future is not guaranteed. Only implied. (laughs) Ah, whatever. I'm better than my competitor. You mean competitor. Whatever. Let's get together. It's funny that you mentioned that skateboarding was one of Aqualad's terrestrial interests. Because part of what he was up to in April of 1985 was the result of his previous extraterrestrial interests. You'll remember back in, I believe it was the original Teen Titans series number 11, the uh, Titans went into space. It was the same issue which Wonder Girl gyrated so wildly that the other Titans had to go into the other room and work out for three days. And they forgot to bring water when they went to space, right? Um, I think it was implied that they did bring water. Oh. Aqualad didn't have any trouble with it, so let's assume they brought some water. Oh, okay, good for them. Yeah. But while he was up in space, they made a lot of recordings of what they were doing because, you know, it was space, it was in the 60s, and uh, that was big news for everybody. Some of those recordings had just come to light and were being broadcast around the world. And you know what a big star Aqualad was all over the world, but especially in Asia. Huge star. People could not get enough of what Aqualad was saying, and so they were listening to these tapes. And some of what was on those tapes was Aqualad razzing Kid Flash. Really? Yeah, yeah, because uh, Kid Flash was talking about how, like, um, I'm a really great dancer. I'm probably as good a dancer as Wonder Girl. And uh, Aqualad was like, no way. I'm the best dancer on this spaceship. And Kid Flash was like, what are you talking about? You're from Atlantis. And Aqualad's rejoinder was, Wally, Gilfrey feet have got no rhythm. And that ended up being slightly mistranslated in China as guilty feet have got no rhythm. Mm. And as a result... There was a huge demand for the song Careless Whispers in China, which was why, in April of 1985, Wham! Make It Big was released in China, and it was the first American pop album released there. Huge hit, in large part because Aqualad had said offhandedly to Wally West, Gil Free Feet have got no rhythm. Dang. And that's what Aqualad was up to. I'm impressed. Probably. That's a. I wanted to use the wham one, but I just couldn't figure out how to tie it in. So good. Oh, it's really obvious, I think. Go free feet. I've got no <laughs> good job. Speaking of lyrics, I don't make any sense. I think my favorite lyric in that is like a ticket to the bozone that uh, George Michaels is delivering. The line, such a passive aggressive line. Though it's easy to pretend, I know you're not a fool. <laughs> That is such a backhanded compliment. 
Like, look, it really, really, really does appear as though you're a total idiot. But I know you're not. Mm-hmm. That, that's a fucking harsh diss, dude. Yeah, no. George Michael's probably writing almost as many tickets to the Bozone as he is to the Bone Zone. It's a lot of tickets. That's what I'm saying. Thank you so much for joining us on this very difficult to ep- edit episode of... Ugh, sorry. Tighten up the defense. It is not at all your fault. It is mine. I am off my game. Thanks for sticking around with us. We received some awesome presents. Really, there's no other way to mm-hmm. thing to call them from some of our wonderful, dedicated listeners. From Amanda, we got a painting of Corey and myself holding a picket sign inside a beautifully rendered anatomical heart. And I love it so much. It is up on the wall of the comic book room, uh, right next to a signed picture of Richard Roundtree and uh, my signed copy of Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Do you know who Superman versus Muhammad Ali is signed by? Certain Neil Adams, Corey. Oh, shit. Which brings us to the other thing that we received. Ah. Uh, Our listener, Ty, sent us a copy of Skate Man that he had signed by Neil Adams, and he had Neil Adams sign it to Hub and Corey, What the Shit Do You Care, Pygmy? It is one of the coolest things that I have seen in a while. We still need to figure out custody of this particular objet d'art, but uh, really, both of these uh, wonderful gifts, um, I cannot thank you enough for them. It, It really does mean the world to me. Thanks, you guys, so much. And thank all of you for listening, and thank you for your support, however you've shown it. This Wednesday was my birthday, and I I got a lot of really, really nice feedback from listeners, and I really appreciate it, and uh, thank you so much. It is so nice. Uh, It's paradise. (laughs) (laughs) It is so good. Oh... And speaking of things that are so good and paradise, that's you listeners. Thank you so much for all of the support you've shown the show. I really, really appreciate it. If you would like to continue to show that support, uh, ways you can do that are leaving us a review on iTunes or Facebook. Um, you can get into touch with us at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can support the show monetarily at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do so... You will get my heartfelt thanks and gratitude, and you will also get access to a lot of donor-only material, including the show What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. Uh, Another episode of that went up just last week, I believe, maybe week before last. I'm bad at time right now. But there's also little videos that I make and uh, some other bonus material Corey and I have recorded. And it's a good time. Everybody loves it. So, you know, get on it, man. You can also tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your everybody Mm -hmm. about the show. Tell your mother, your father, your great-grandmother. Yeah. And, you know, other people, too. Pretty much anyone. Yeah. You're you're congressman. Mm Mm-hmm. And he'll say, whoa, love to help you, son. Bunch of balls are too low. (laughs) (laughs) What? Um, do you remember when Jim's friend, uh, <laughs> wrote to a congress, wrote to his, like, congressman yes. because the water level in his toilet was too high and it was splashing his balls? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I pictured that resulting in a conversation that, 
I called my congressman and he said, Whoa, I'd love to help you, Mike, but your balls are too low. <laughs> anyway, there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. Nope. Or is there? No, nah, there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. Tighten up the defense. Catch the wave of the future with us and hang 10 on it. Cowabunga. Bye. Cowabunga. And they know it. Appropriate or not, that wasn't the question you asked whether I would want one. I didn't ask any questions yet, James. I've noticed that, I've noticed that, and frankly, I would like my burrito now. I was trying to lead you in a certain direction. I'm going a little bit more Kelsey Grammer right now. (laughs) It's getting weird. (laughs) Kelsey Grammer and James Earl Jones would have a beautiful baby. (laughs) With a lot of gravitas. What if James Earl Jones was also in uh, Periscope Down? Now there <laughs> would have been the ultimate sea men's buddy movie. The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing us that James Earl Jones and Kelsey Grammer were different people. 